We are in the Gospel of Mark, so if you've got a Bible, let's get there. Chapter 3. We started this series, I don't know if you've been here the whole time, three months ago now. Um, and I threw down at the time uh, a question that's going to come up over and over and over again in our text. And uh, I, think, I think the gospel writer intended it to be a question we have to deal with. And the question is very simple. What are you going to do about Jesus? Uh, Mark is trying to portray him as the servant savior king, the one with the authority to do and say what he did. And so uh, you, you have to respond to it. I mean, you can, there's lots of different versions of response, but you can't deny it. Someone who claims to be God and the authority and the truth deserves some kind of response, okay? And so I told you that was coming. And some people, some people choose to marginalize Jesus. Like, just, just keep him over here in a safe distance where he's a good, kind man um, with a lot of helpful things to say to bring contribution to our life and our world. But let's keep him over there and away from us and so he's not God. Some people would say, no, he's, he's a, he is a, a bad guy. In fact, this religion thing is really hurtful to the world and to humanity and so they accuse him of bad intentions. And then some people just want to use Jesus. Add him to their collection of already held values and say, okay, fit in here nicely, Jesus, and, and uh, make me happier, make it better, um, give, it, give it a point. And uh, what I think is so fascinating about the stories that we're going to read today is that uh, what we see in this narrative isn't much different than what you see in our world. People haven't changed, and neither has the responses to Jesus. I'm certain if I mentioned the name C.S. Lewis, everyone in here would know him, some for different reasons. Some have picked up his probably most popular work, the, the novels, the Chronicles of Narnia, and say, yeah, well, that, and maybe you haven't even read it, maybe you've just got the film ad, adaptation of the last 10 years, and so you know him that way. But let me tell you a little bit more about him, and specifically one of his works, and that's the way it kind of fits in our, in our text today. Um, C.S. Lewis was a, a poet, and he was a writer, and, and he was a... Uh, academic, and, and he was an apologist. And what he spent a lot of his time, what he cared most about was defending the gospel, the story of Christianity and the Savior, and specifically the person of Jesus. And so you might pick up some of his works and find him really pointed in that. One of his most famous ones is Mere Christianity. And Mere Christianity, a little small book, yet profound. Most Christians who've lived long enough have at least seen the title if they haven't read it comes from a series of sermons he gave during World War II on British radio. And so they just collected all these together and formulated mere Christianity. <clears throat> and, and one of the well, most well-known points that he makes, most used or repeated in sermons, is this thing that writers have called the Lewis um, trilemma. Now, I know that sounds a little heavy. Let me explain. What G Lewis was trying to do was to force people to think to deal with what Jesus said about himself. He claimed to be God, so you, you have to deal with that. You can't just write it off or assume that it, it, it doesn't make a difference in your life. And, and opposed to what some people would choose to think of Jesus, that he was a very sincere, well-meaning, good teacher, um, that Lewis suggests that that's not an option because Jesus didn't give us that option. He forces you by his declaration of being God. He forces you to have to deal with other issues, right? In fact... Um, Here's what we're most familiar with. Lewis made this statement. I think he made the statement probably because he read the narrative we're in today, and that is that you have to either consider Jesus a, a liar or a lunatic or Lord. Have you heard this, this Lewis trilemma? Now you have a word to go with it, okay? Um, you have to deal with it. He's either out of his mind by declaring himself to be God, or he knows he's lying. He's just trying to perpetrate this lie on a, a bunch of people. 
or he's the real deal. You, you don't have many other options, okay? In fact, this is how Lewis penned the, the, the tension. I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would be not a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell himself. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman, or possibly something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God, but let us not come with this patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He never intended to. That's where this tension comes, and that's the story we're in in Mark, right? I mention it because we have all those things depicted here. There's a group of people we'll find here in a minute who are sympathetic to Jesus. They're friends of Jesus. They're his boys, and yet they don't understand, and so their, their attempt, their only thing they can say, well, he's just crazy. I mean, we love him and everything else, but he slipped off the cracker, and so we've got to help him. That, that's how some people would view Jesus. And wrapped in this whole narrative is this other story of people who think that Jesus is evil, accuse him of demonic oppression, and uh, so they say he's bad. And in the middle of all these narratives, Jesus talks about things like his power and his authority, like he does in almost every story that we see. He, he talks about a warning of sin, a particular sin called blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. He talks about an amazing encouragement of grace, and he reminds us, the church, um, what it is to really belong to Jesus. What is his true family, okay? So that's the totality of the stories in this narrative that we're going to look at. Let's deal with the very first accusation, the accusation that Jesus is crazy, and it's found in verse 20 and 21. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. So you get the picture, he's, he's back at, at, at Capernaum, and it's just pressed in with people, so much so that he can't even go through uh, normal eating. And when his family heard of it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he's out of his mind. Now, uh, before I talk about why they thought Jesus was, was crazy, let me give you a couple of words here that kind of define who and what's happening here. The first one is the word family. Now, we could just assume by reading that, well, it must be his his mom and his brothers, but the, the word actually uh, is better translated those of him, okay? It's not intended to say family. I think it probably got translated that way because of how this passage ends at the end of chapter 3 talking about his mothers and his brother and, and sisters so that he drags it back and, and they say, well, it's family. I'm certain it could include family, but it's not just family. What you have to think is that there's a group of people that really care for him. All of his boys, everybody who's there who remembers Jesus, who really has an interest in him, they're the ones who are there. The second word I want you to notice in this small little section is the word seize. The word means to arrest. It it means to, to deprive someone of their freedom. So the way I want you to think about what's happening here is a, an intervention, okay? Just, just think how we would go about helping someone who we thought wasn't living right or they were in some addictive state and we wanted to, because of love and concern, friends and family would come after them to try to keep them from their options so we can get them healthy again, okay? So just picture that as the scenario that these friends are coming to Jesus regarding, that they're trying to care for him. They're worried about him. They're, they're worried that he's lost his mind. 
And my guess is that all the reports of what Jesus was doing and, and what he was saying and how people were responding to him, it started to get out, okay? And, and the crowds were crushing in on him, and, and uh, all that story got back to, to the friends, and so they concluded at, one, at least at one position, he's not healthy. This is not healthy. This is not good for him, right? So, so even verse 20 says he's not even able to eat. That's a problem. Crowd's so huge that he's fear for being crushed. He teaches predominantly from a boat from here on out, out on the shore, so they can look at crowds at, at a shoreline so they don't press in on him, Right? He doesn't know, they don't know how he's providing for himself. He used to be a carpenter. He walked away from the family business. What is he doing? Like, how can Jesus, this is not healthy for Jesus. The other thing is, is they concluded was that he's not right in the head. He's too zealous. And he's taken this thing way too far, way too far. I mean, everybody wants to take the things of God seriously, but come on, Jesus, lighten up a little bit. That's, that's far too, too, too much. You're hanging around with the ultimate motley crew. I mean, some people have horrible reputations. That's a bad sign. You're not thinking this thing through. You're staying up all night praying. That's what we hear. You don't even sleep. You're, you're not eating, right? You have all this conflict with authorities, and you're calling yourself God. You're not right, Jesus. In fact, John tells us that his brothers didn't believe in him, so they just saw this as crazy talk, okay? At this point in the story, the family of Jesus is looking at him going, who does he think he is? So the best they could think of, that he was out of his mind. They were marginalizing him. Good man, good intentions, sincere as sunshine, but not right, okay? And that's how they concluded it in their minds. Which, by the way, is a very popular position on Jesus. Because Jesus is way too radical. He's way too intense. This gospel story and how he expects us to live in this gospel story is way too much for us. We live in a different culture where being a Christian can be kind of played down. I'm not saying it's good. I'm just saying it's the way it is. Um, you can be perceived just like everyone else is. And the best that they'll say, the most they'll say of you is, nice guy. But if you lived as radically as Jesus is living, if you loved as radically as the gospel tells us to love, well, you're going to stick out. And my guess is you'll get accused. I think anybody who chooses to live radically for Christ is going to get accused of this. And I'm not kidding. I mean, you can go back in the scriptures. Even Paul, the Apostle Paul, 90% of the New Testament. <clears throat> and he was communicating the gospel, and he was on fire for Christ, and he was arrested for it. And he's now standing in front, in Acts 26, he's standing in front of King Agrippa, and Festus, the governor, is with him. And they're asking him to explain himself and his demeanor and his zealousness and his passion. And so Paul, all he can do is tell the story. I was persecuting the church and Jesus met me and I was, could see and then he made me blind and then I could see inside and I was totally transformed and that's why I'm here today. He's telling his story and, and Festus, the only thing he could say about Paul was, you're nuts. Your learnedness has gone to your head. You're just crazy. That's exactly what the text says. You're crazy. You remember, if we go even back to the Old Testament, 2 Samuel chapter 6, David, man after God's own heart. I mean, if anybody could teach us lessons on what it is to worship, David would be one of the people. And the text tells us that David, when he was ushering the, the Ark of the Covenant back into Jerusalem, right, this, this depiction of we're going to follow God, he is our God, and one and only, David gets carried away in his worship, and he gets all the way down to his boxers, and he's dancing, in front of the people, in front of the ladies of the town. And he can't even, he's not even thinking about it. He's just carried away with God. And his wife, Michael, looks at him and says, you're nuts. I mean, no, no king would do that. That's not the behavior of a king. You're acting too radical. And I guess I suppose there's a point we can stop and make that there's, there's never 
are too radical for those who follow Christ. Do you understand what I'm saying? I mean, let, let it sink in a little bit. Maybe it leaves us with convicted that we're maybe too safe, maybe too careful, potentially. But Jesus isn't. He sacrifices and he gives himself. He doesn't eat, he doesn't sleep, he prays a lot and he cares and he talks about his authority and about him being God and come to save people from their sins and he heals people and they make the accusation that he's way too crazy um, for them. So, poor guy, he's not right in the head, let's help him. Second accusation, second accusation, verses 22 through 30 is that Jesus is evil. Verse 22, and the scribes who came down from Jerusalem, Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he cast out the demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, how, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan is risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he will plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. First of all, I want you to notice who's, who's the ones making the accusations. The, the text tells the scribes from Jerusalem came down. So just see this. this these are the professional legalists. Th these are the people trained to find error in their minds. And so the big shots are coming down from the corporate office to assess the situation in Jesus. And, and Matthew's version of the story tells us a little part that kind of kicked in and instigated their accusation. Matthew tells us that there was a man there, a demon-possessed man there, who was blind and mute. And Jesus says, come out of him. And suddenly he sees and he talks. It's after that event that these scribes, these Pharisees, tell the crowds, this guy is doing this out of the power of Satan, okay? That, that's the story, okay? With that as a backdrop, um, they say Jesus is, is evil. In fact, what the Pharisees say is that Jesus himself is possessed, and he's possessed by Beelzebub. Now, I think it's interesting, a little maybe interesting only to me, but I'm going to say it anyway. Um, it's kind of, kind of hard to nail down exactly what Beelzebul means, like exactly kind of what it's meant to say initially. Um, it, it, it's a Syrian god, originally meant Lord, Lord of the dwelling. Over time, the Jews uh, kind of emphasized the disgusting nature of this person and looked for ways to kind of make it sound like, like as contemptible as it is, and they would change it to Lord of the Flies or Lord of the Dung, and they just kind of would make those phrases. Um, but the best way to interpret this Beelzebul word is Baal's abode, Satan's house, okay? So now, if you're paying attention to verse 27, verse 27 is Jesus using a parable to describe how the strong man, the strong man's house can only be taken over if there's someone stronger. So just keep that in mind as, as we're going through this. Jesus is the stronger man. The strong man in the story is Satan, and he's making a point here, specifically a point about the title for Beelzebul, which they accuse Jesus of, of casting out demons from. You tracking so far? So um, that's the reality of it. What the problem was here wasn't that Jesus didn't perform the miracle. The Pharisees were not accusing him of making this up. My guess, and this is total speculation, that if at that moment, if there was no crowds and it was simply the religious leaders from Jerusalem watching Jesus heal a man, they probably would have invented a story like, didn't see any healing. What healing? I'm not, I didn't see anything. 
That'd be way easier to deal with. But the crowd saw this man who was notoriously in this condition, possessed by a demon, unable to talk and unable to see, suddenly it's all changed. Well, they couldn't change the narrative. They had to deal with the reality of that healing, and so they only had two options. God does that or Satan. They chose Satan. He did it by the power of of Satan. This guy works for him. Now, Jesus responds in verses 24 through 26 with what I would call the logical conclusion of the accusation. Look at it again. If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. In other words, civil war makes no sense because it destroys the very nation. Look at verse 25. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. In other words, family tensions destroy homes. Makes no sense. Verse 26. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. Satan doesn't fight against his own agenda. It would make no, no point for him to get in his own way, right? And so there is no response from the Pharisees that we know of, no return fire. They just simply were quiet, as they should be, because as soon as you lay out a couple of those simple observations, they're caught. They want to blame this miracle on the evil one but they realize that they're saying something counterintuitive to how this all, this all works. And so Jesus kind of finishes it with a parable point in verse 27. It's a powerful point we'll come back to again, but here's what he says. No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds a strong man. In other words, you're accusing me of working for the bad guy. But how can I cast out the very demon that's possessing and muting and blinding this man unless I am not stronger and better, bigger and badder? In fact, I have to go into a house and, and take back his possessions. And only the stronger one can do that. He's, he's telling a story about the power that he himself maintains and what he's doing. Um, we're going to get back to that and make a point at the end. But look at verses 28 through 30. Jesus then moves on from this parable. Again, I think these, all these stories and these illustrations are kind of no-brainers in, in their implications. There is no, there's no discussion of explanation. There's no response from the Pharisees. He simply moves on to talk about what their actions mean, potentially. Look what he says. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin, for they were saying he has an unclean spirit. There is something very frightening here, a very frightening warning. And what I would call in a very amazing encouragement in these couple of verses. Let's deal with the warning first. These verses are considered to most people um, one of the hard sayings of Jesus. If you go grab one of the books of some of these writers who put together the, the collection of, of difficult sayings and truths that Jesus taught, this would be probably one of them. It's probably also one of the most misunderstood particular part, portions of what Jesus said. Because everyone has heard about the unforgivable sin. Sin you can't repent of, the eternal sin. In fact, um, I wouldn't be surprised that a lot of us have wondered if we've committed the sin. I've talked to a lot of people who, who, uh, who at moments in their life, I don't know where they are spiritually in their life, probably kind of on the journey, who've asked the question, okay, Jesus says something specific about a specific sin that can't be forgiven, that's my worst nightmare, did I, did I commit it? Am I, have I crossed that line somewhere? And so I think it's confusing, and I think it's uh, one of the things that has a tendency to potentially haunt the church. I'm going to tell you what it is, but before I do, I'm going to tell you what it's not so that we can kind of emphasize it a little bit. 
If you're one of those people convinced that possibly you've been there, crossed this line, then I want you to tell, her what, tell you what it isn't. The, the eternal sin, the unforgivable sin, is not murder. As horrible as that is. It's not lying and it's not stealing. The eternal sin is not adultery. It's not multiple adultery. The eternal sin is not falling or failing your Christian faith. It's not being in the journey with Christ and having been somewhere really good and finding yourself somewhere really bad. It isn't, it isn't that sin. It's not waking up mad at God and cursing the Holy Spirit. As offensive as that could be, it's, it's not the eternal sin. It's not suicide. I've heard people talk about that. Like, once you cross that line, that's murder on yourself and you can't return and whatever. In fact, before I even tell you what the, the eternal sin is, I'm going to tease you a little bit more and tell you why none of those sins are the eternal sin. Look at verse 28. And let me encourage you, church, you should circle verse 28. It should be on your top five list, okay? Without this truth, none of us have any hope. But this is our hope. Jesus says, Jesus, the Lord of our salvation says, truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. Stop. Here's why that's an encouragement. Because the grace of God is immense. Every week we get together and every song we sing and communion, what we are trying to focus on is the uncontainable, superabounding grace of God that covers over everything you've ever thought about and all the sin you've yet to invent. It covers it all so completely he remembers it no more, right? Now, now listen to me, every sin. Every sin, every single thing that we have committed is forgivable, everything. To everyone who calls it sin and calls him Savior, we go free. That's the conditions. You got to say what he says about it, and you got to trust his ability to forgive it. And those, those two aspects are what makes us trust in the forgiveness of God. If you want forgiveness, look up for a second. I don't know where you are in your spiritual journey. You might be one of those that totally had this heart flutter when we talked about the sin that can't be forgiven because you're convinced you've got secrets in your closet that are those. If you want forgiveness, ask. And it's yours freely, freely in Christ, all yours. As crazy as this might sound, if Adolf Hitler, the, just before he pulled the trigger on his own head, said, you know what, I'm a sinner, I need a savior, and he ran to Jesus, he would be forgiven. Jeffrey Dahmer, if, if I don't know how this worked out for him, but if somehow he came to his senses and recognized his sin and turned to Jesus, he would be forgiven. A terrorist who kills indiscriminately innocent people who would come to their senses and see themselves as sinners in need of a savior, they could be forgiven. The grace of God is immense. So what is the eternal sin? You ready? Here's what it is. It's the ongoing continual rejection of the witness of the Holy Spirit to the deity and the saviorhood of Jesus. You get it? This is a consistent stuck-in-the-mud position. He's not God, and that's not of the Spirit. That's what it is to commit this eternal sin. It's an act of resistance that belittles the Holy Spirit. And it belittles him so completely that you can't back up from it. You don't want to. You're stuck in unrepentant position. Do you understand? That, that's what it means. 
It's, it's this. It's if someone sees the good work of the Spirit and just refuses to accept it or see it, rejects it all the time, calls it bad, calls the good thing bad, then they're in this, this position, or at least potentially in this position. Because here's what the Spirit does. And everyone in here who calls themselves a Christian has seen this. The Spirit of God convicts the human heart, doesn't it? Like you're doing your own thing and suddenly your eyes open. You wake up and you can't sleep at night because the conviction, the weight of the Spirit is on you. The Spirit of God wakes up the human heart to love God and chase after God. The, the Spirit of God takes this word, this thing that at one time looks like just a confusing mess to us, and makes it life to us. That's why Jesus can use things like water and bread to describe it. Like it's, it's my sustenance, it's everything I want. The Spirit of God opens our eyes to that. The Spirit of God does miracles, of which the greatest miracle ever is the transformed life. It's more, super, it's more mind-blowing than any other miracle. Is to see a heart hardened in his sin to tap out and say, I love Jesus, and to be softened. He, he does those things. This particular sin, this unforgivable sin, would see all that good stuff and say, nah, a bunch of crippled people, insecure people, they need a crutch. They can't see the Spirit of God in it. They won't call it good. They call it bad. And that's precisely what the Pharisees are doing here when Jesus is doing this work and specifically healing this demon-possessed man. Now, it's important to note um, that Jesus didn't say they've committed the sin. He warned them, right? I don't know if they crossed the line. It just simply says what it says. He didn't say they committed it. So let me, let me answer another question. Why does Jesus exclude this one sin from, from forgiveness? If every sin under the, under the stars can be forgiven by repentance, why, why this particular one? I, I'm going to read kind of a long section by Piper, who's way smarter than I'll ever be, um, but I think it helps to define this. Why is this one sin excluded? Here's, here's what he says. I think the reason is that blasphemy against the Holy Spirit puts you beyond repentance and therefore beyond forgiveness. Verse 29 is not an exception to verse 28. Jesus is not saying all blasphemies that you repent of will be forgiven except blasphemy against the Spirit. He is saying all blasphemies that you repent of will be forgiven, but blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven because it puts you beyond repentance. You won't be able to repent of it. If a sin makes it impossible for you to repent, then that is an unforgivable sin because forgiveness is promised only to those sins from which we generally re repent of. Make sense so far? Now listen as he goes on. But why does this one particular sin, this one blasphemy, make it impossible to repent and be forgiven? What about blasphemy against the Son of God or God the Father or angels or scriptures or, or the church? Why do these not put us beyond repentance and forgiveness? Why only blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? I think it's because of the unique, decisive role the Holy Spirit plays in our salvation. If we look to God the Father and then turn from his glory to embrace sin, that's bad. If we look to Jesus the Son, whom he sent into the world, and then turn from his glory to embrace sin, well, that's doubly bad. But in either case, there's hope. The Father has planned, now listen to this, the Father has planned redemption, the Son has accomplished redemption. The wonderful redemption is outside of ourselves and, and available to us if we repent of our sin and turn back to Christ in faith. But it is the unique, special role of the Holy Spirit to apply the Father's plan and the Son's accomplishment to our hearts. It's the Spirit's work to open our eyes, to grant repentance, and to make us beneficiaries of all that the Father has planned and all that Christ has done for us. If we blaspheme and reject the Father and the Son, there is still hope. For the Spirit may yet work within us to humble us and bring us to repentance. 
But if, we, if behind the Father and Son we see and taste the power of the Holy Spirit and reject his work as no more precious than the work of Satan, we shut ourselves off from the only one who could ever bring us to our senses and bring us to repentance, and so we shut ourselves off from forgiveness. Do you understand that? In the, in the total Trinity's work in your salvation, God planned this story, Jesus secured this story, and the Spirit of God regenerates your heart to believe the story. That's how it goes down. And if we resist the Spirit, resist the Spirit, resist the Spirit, well, you can't repent, therefore you can't be forgiven. Make sense? That's the eternal sin. That's the one that leads to destruction. So if you sat here before, because this always happens, you talk about eternal sin, church does this. Big saucer eyes. Waiting to hear which one it was. If you're worried about if you've committed eternal sin, you're safe. Because the person who would commit this sin wouldn't care. Doesn't care about Jesus, doesn't care about the Spirit, doesn't care about sin, doesn't care about repentance. They don't care. If you're worried that somehow your sin is an offense against a holy God, you're in good place. Just repent of it, right? So let's get back to the story. The story started with Jesus and his family friends, let's say, who are coming to seize him because they think he's nuts. We have this other group of people that have come into the story, the hard-hearted religious leaders who are now accusing him of evil. So we're going to kind of finish where we started, and, and it's with this family coming back around who think they know what's important, who think they know what Jesus should be doing. Look at verses 31 through 35. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they, they sent to him and called to him, and a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. There, there are three particular things I want you to notice in this narrative. One is that Jesus isn't saying something bad. He isn't saying something bad about our natural families. In fact, Jesus, we're going to find it in Mark chapter 9 where Jesus talks about honoring father and mother. When, when Jesus was hanging on the cross, he saw his mother, his natural mother, burdened by his death. And he looks over at John and says, fix it, John. You're the man now. He understands structure. He understands the natural families. It's a, a blessing to, to us. But I want you to notice this. Jesus' family wasn't there for a good reason. They weren't there for a good reason. They, uh, they care about him, we can just assume. They're there because of maybe things that they heard, things they want to accomplish for Jesus. They think they know best. But they don't have a clue about his mission. They don't know why he's there. They don't know why he's preaching. They don't know why he's staying up all night. They don't know why he's healing people. They don't believe he's God. They have no idea about his intentions. And so they're there to try to get him turned away from that thing. So in essence, they're doing the very opposite of thing, what Jesus was coming for. They were trying to thwart his plan, unknowing, as sincere as they were, as well-meaning as they were, their attempt was to do just the opposite, and that is to get in the way of ministry. And that's why Jesus stops, and the text kind of paints this picture. He stops when they asked about him. He stops and looks at the crowd. The text implies that he hovered there looking at them, kind of a quiet moment, Jesus staring you down. And he says, who's my mother? Who are my brothers? Everyone. Everyone is my brother. My mother, my sister who does the will of God. In, in, in other words, what Jesus is saying is there's a far deeper family than flesh and bone. There's a way deeper connection. That's what he says in verse 23. Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and my sister and my mother. Our spiritual family is way more important. Connections are deeper. Relationships are deeper. 
I'm glad God gives us families. I, I really am. But, it, but in my life experience, there's something about connecting to people who love Jesus that I can't share with DNA unless they share my Savior. I've, I've had these experiences, and they're weird. It's probably more me. I don't socialize well. I don't know how to dance. I don't know what that means. Um, but we end up in these conversations with, with I have in my past with family, and, and because we don't share what I think is the most important thing in life, we end up talking about grass and cars and work. and I could care less. I could care less. It just I feel so plastic doing it, you know? Um, but I could meet a total stranger, and we start talking about Jesus. Haven't you experienced that? Every, every believer has experienced this weird sense of family and connection to people who love Jesus. I was in Apple, the Apple store this week. Bad scene. The whole thing's bad scene for me. Um, <laughs> crowded, hate crowds. Um, had to wait, don't like to wait. And it had to do with computers. I'm not good at those either. So the whole thing was just not, not good. And I was sitting at the Genius Bar. I was at the Genius Bar waiting for some genius to help me. And uh, this girl comes out uh, of my right side and sits down in front of me and says, don't you go to Redemption Church? I go, I go uh, yeah, I do. <laughs> I had a good attitude, so nobody knew. And she said, well, I used to go to East Valley Bible Church eight years ago, and I went to 710. 710 is our uh, young adult ministry. Eight years ago, yeah. And uh, so she starts to tell me about being married and where she met her husband and her kids and family, where did they go to church and how they serve. And in about five minutes, I was, she was like a sister, just talking, just chatting. It was so weird, so weird. Exact, but that's exactly what Jesus was kind of implying. Who are my, who are my brothers and who's my mother and who, who are my sisters? You want to prioritize things this way and get carried away with the, the things I give you, like the, the, the physical family things. And I'm spinning this around and saying, no, what you share spiritually is far deeper, far greater, far more significant. In fact, it kind of confronts all these ways that people want to respond to Jesus, really. And, and it's kind of how I want to finish this. And the one point that I have to make, there's lots of different ways that people want to respond to Christ. There, there is some who think that they're doing him a favor, favor if they simply kind of toe the line on principles and the good things. Like, Jesus, listen, I'm, I'm, you know, I think you have a lot of good things to say about how to treat other people, and so I, I buy into those principles. But I'm not going to go quite so far as to give you control of my life like you're God or anything. That would be ridiculous. And so I'm going to marginalize you at least to being good at teaching or good at principles of life. And so there are some people who would do that. They won't go all the way to worship. Then there's some who respond to Jesus um, when he talks about his authority, when he uses words like repent for the kingdom of God is hand. No. Sin and the Savior? No, that's, that's ridiculous. And, and some would, would uh, simply say that that is just a system for weak people. I, I've actually watched television shows where they're dialoguing, having debates about how religion or specifically Christianity is just a crutch for stupid people. Right? In fact, they would go so far as to say it's harmful because look what it does. It makes you dependent on another. It makes you not be your own man or your own woman and lead your own life. You're now subservient to this system. And, and after all, hasn't bad things happened in that system? And so they would call this Jesus bad. And this, is, this next one might be more prevalent in our world than, than those others. 
some of us think that Jesus should be about our business. You know, like his family showing up in the middle of his sermon going, hey, go get him. His family's here. We got to change the agenda. The meeting's over. We got to do something else. And some of us come to Jesus like that. Okay, Jesus, you're here for my family and my business, my politics, my agenda. Like, Jesus, you neatly need to fit into my currently held passions and my, my established, like, convictions. Like, fit here. Don't change it. Just kind of be in it. And, and I think that's probably more like us than anything else, to not give him total control and say, it's your world. I'm your servant. Do what you got to do. Rearrange the pieces. Sometimes we come to him and say, no, I prefer you. I prefer you to do my will. And I want you to know what I think the text says here, at least in verse 35, for certain, there's only one way to approach Jesus as Lord and Savior. Because that's who he is. That's who he declared himself to be. I love verse 27 because in that parable, you have the strong man and in this particular story, the, the, the kind of the house that he is controlling and manipulating is this earth, right? And, and his goods, his possessions are people under his control and his rule. And yet the stronger man, the strongest man, Jesus, shows up to liberate the captives and set them free from bad, stupid thoughts that would condemn them to hell forever. Jesus shows up as Lord and Savior to free us from our sins. And there's only one way. There's only one simple way to, to approach Christ. It is to submit. Verse 28 tells us that all forgiveness is in him. And, and submission is how we respond to him. If we do the will of God, then he can be ours. I uh, wrestle sometimes with wondering how many different types of people that come to hear a sermon. And uh, clearly there are some of you, a lot of you, I look at faces and go, well, you're, you've been following Jesus for a long time. And some of these stories should be just old hat to you. Um, but I'm always like moved. We're in the gospel st for a reason, for a season. And I thought, well, what, what if God wants to save a bunch of people? Like what if, what if God wants to open your eyes? And so... What my prayer was is that there might be at least one of you today who hear about the declaration of Jesus and the liberty that Jesus brings and the freedom that he gives you and the forgiveness that is certain in him, forgiveness for everything so that you can walk free. And all I'm going to tell you, it comes just one simple way, repent and believe. Repent and believe. Repentance just means leave it. Leave your sin and pursue your Savior. That's all you've got to do. It doesn't mean you clean up your mess. It doesn't mean make yourself acceptable or make yourself presentable. You're not, and it's okay. You just come as you are. He accepts you as you are, and he covers you in his righteousness. And you are forgiven, forever forgiven. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for Jesus. I thank you for the forgiveness that's perfect and complete in him. I thank you, Father, that there is not a single blasphemy that we have or will do that isn't forgivable if we repent of it. And I just pray, God, you keep us soft. If there is someone here today who um, has marginalized you or simply tried to uh, add you to their current um, life without making you Lord of their life, if there's someone who thinks that you're just a, a bad, bad story, I pray, God, your Holy Spirit would wake them up right now. To the one and only, to Jesus our Savior, we pray. Amen.